everyone. This is Sean, and welcome to If You've Come This Far. Uh, this is a podcast where my friend Chris and I have authentic conversations with interesting people about what they do to make life more fulfilling and more impactful. Uh, usually we're um, asking people to come talk to us because, you know, we've read a book or an article that they've written that, that we think is really cool, and uh, we just want to explore that with them. And uh, actually, our guest for this week Chuka Mizu is exactly uh, that kind of individual. Um, but it, before I go into it, Chris? Well, I mean, the the writing of books, the writing of articles is certainly a, a typical box that some of our guests check. But Chuka checks multiple boxes. Um, yeah. I think you found Chuka after reading an op-ed he'd written in Ms. Magazine. And of course, the listeners will hear you humiliate me for not knowing the history of Ms. Magazine. Um, in our conversation with Chuka, humiliate you never. Well, I mean, <laughs> never. My ass. <laughs> um, I probably did at one point. No, uh, I, I just can't remember um, so much these days in my in my elder years. Um, <laughs> but anyway, you set me straight. <laughs> Chuka had written an op-ed piece in his magazine uh, called The Danger of Incels and How We Shift the Thinking of Men Attracted to These Groups. Um, I'll be honest, I don't think I'd ever, I don't think I knew what incels meant before I read that article um, in uh, Involuntary Celibates, but it was fascinating. Yeah. I think you, uh, it grabbed you and and then you found out, I think Chuka is here in Chicago. Yeah. Um, he's just, um, He's got a fascinating story. He's he's brilliant, and he yes. is um, very busy. Um, but uh, uh, his background, he grew up in Nigeria. He came to the U.S. for his graduate studies. Um, one of the things I, I love the most um, about his sort of life and his vocation, his thing, quote-unquote thing, as he puts it, is violence prevention. Uh, and this has led him to, 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 to try to develop a solution for violence prevention called Brotherly Act. Uh, yeah. So, but yeah, he's a he's an assistant professor at Rush University. He teaches. He's he's a new father. Um, I think he had slept a couple hours uh, the night before we interviewed him. Uh, um, yeah. So, he's yeah, well, because like not only, yeah, because not only is he have a, a young son, but he's Writing articles and and Brotherly Act is just one of the multiple organizations um, that he's putting in place. Um, he graduated with a degree in nursing from Mizzou, and and so the listeners will hear all this. But but that's another interesting thing about him. Um, so yeah, just a just a wonderful man trying to uh, uh, not trying to uh, just impacting the world in a in a big way. Yeah, yeah. And he teaches nursing, by the way. And so we we spent some time on the nursing profession and its yeah. importance in the healthcare system um, and the challenges it's facing, right, With in terms of, of just the numbers, the attrition that's going on in the nursing profession, the demographics, it's predominantly white, predominantly female. Um, and so he's like, he's trying to solve multiple big problems. Um, yeah, he's a cool dude, for sure. Here we go. All right, let's do it. Maybe just to start, uh, Chuka is with us because I, for some, I don't know how I found my way to uh, an article that he wrote in Ms. Magazine um, uh, on involuntary involuntary celibates mm -hmm. in cells, which we'll talk about maybe what that means for the listeners if they don't know. Um, and I'm like, okay, this is, you know, 
I, I looked you up and then I found out all the other things that you're doing um, as are in working with young men and boys and issues around violence uh, in our communities and second chances and and we'll and we'll get into that. But I thought it would be um, great for you to come on and talk talk to us about these things. I you know Chris and I <laughs> Chris is I, I just told him like he's made he's one of the my smartest friends and he didn't know that Ms Magazine was started by Gloria Steinem back in the seventies. Wow. And so maybe he's not he's not maybe one of my friends because <laughs> he didn't he, he didn't know that. How did how did your how did your piece end up in Ms? I, I was it when I read it, I'm like, okay, this is an interesting place for this article to be. Maybe, maybe not. But how how did you how did it get published there? So uh short story is I am part of the it's an op-ed pro program, a public voices fellow with the op-ed program. And as part of the program, we write two op-eds that get sent to publications where it's relevant. And Miss Magazine was one of the options for one of my coaches in the program. And I thought this was the most radical thing to do is publish this message about incels on one of the most foremost feminist magazines out there. Yeah. And it was just a, it was well-received, a natural um, place to situate the, the publication well yeah. and and um man like there's 17 different ways we could go here but but yeah. I, I i would love to hear you talk about that the subject matter of that article and these incels which was a new term to me but maybe before we do that um um i'm struck by how many balls you have in the air chuka like <laughs> isn't that the story of my life That's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so you got you got to you got to give us a sense for for like all like all the things you're doing, brotherly act and 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 your professorship and this op-ed thing and uh I think Sean mentioned you're also a parent, which we all know takes is not not a a part-time job necessarily. So, yeah, can you give us like the 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 big picture of like how you're spending your life these days? I'm busy, constantly busy. I went to bed at 3.30 a.m. last night because I had to reply an email to someone in Lithuania publishing about incels and they needed a byline or something to add. So that's my life in, in summary. But yes, I, I think as a new faculty, new-ish faculty, I've been a, an assistant professor for two years now. And, you know, my life used to be all as a PhD student research. But now it's expanded a little bit more to research, um, teaching. I teach uh, PhD and you know doctoral nursing students. But there's also what we call service work as an academic, which is you doing fun stuff, supporting your community, supporting the university, and so that's where Broadly Act comes in. Um, and I do a lot of you know creative nonfiction writing about the topic of violence prevention, which is you know basically my my thing is trying to prevent various forms of violence. That's what keeps me busy. And we have a, a little man who just turned a year old. And yeah, I am, well, he's, he has us wrapped around his, his uh, finger and we're just here to serve him. <laughs> uh, I'm familiar with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. He's our first, so still learning. So were you up really at three thirty feeding him, and you threw in the byline thing? You know, reached out to no, the guy I hadn't gone to bed. I hadn't uh, gone to bed. Chugged some energy uh, uh, drink too late yesterday because <laughs> I was doing some gardening and mowing. 
uh, by the idea. Um, I'm still up. I realized I just had to go reply that really quickly because that's usually when inspiration strikes me. And then I'm yeah. writing, you know, outside of the, you know, peer-reviewed manuscripts. But that's usually when I get time to write, you know, things I love writing about. Well, well, when so, I look, so, go, go ahead, Sean. Go ahead. No, I was going to say just before before we go back to because we've referenced brotherly act as sweatshirt. So why why not? I mean, let's just probably like, okay, what's this brotherly act thing? So why don't you why don't you like tell the listeners first what that project is, and then we'll kind of wrap it all together as we yeah. go forward. Sure. So brotherly act or the brother brotherly act project is a passion project I've had for the last five years. And I've been thinking of a way to do violence prevention work without making it boring or focused on, you know, policies that are not moving anywhere, so on and so forth. And the idea is to figure out a way we can harness technology, especially during the pandemic where, you know, everything was shut down, violence, some forms of violence spiked during that time. It just made sense to figure out how to use technology um, to support violence prevention. And I have worked with men who we call them, you know, I mean, we just call them violent men, but men who use violence in the home against um, their partner, so domestically violent men. And during the pandemic, everything came to a standstill. These men are mandated to complete the programs, right, by the court system, but, you know, they couldn't go in. And so we switched to Zoom, trying to you know, support this man. Zoom wasn't really working. You know, you'd see some people doze off, you know, on Zoom or someone could be high during the session. But Braille Act now is trying to figure out a way we can use technology, um, specifically smartphone, a smartphone app that we're working on to deliver some of the services, violence prevention services to young men. So we're starting out now working with young black men uh, for various reasons. And I could talk about this for, for days, but there are some groups of men who cannot go down. So I live in Chicago, Rush University is in Chicago. But they cannot take the bus, you know, to go downtown or go somewhere to get, you know, violence prevention services. Think of young men in gangs or just a young man who he probably is being abused by his partner. Uh, so we want to be able to discreetly, confidentially, reliably give this young man various forms of services in the comfort of their home using technology. So that's the long-winded answer to what Brotherly Act is all about. And what what is the um, we'll go a little deeper on Brotherly Act first because this is fascinating. But what is the cocktail or portfolio of treatments or services that that we can use to to prevent? And we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit, right? But mm. but 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 what what do you what are you able to offer through um, through a mobile app or technology that can help? Yes. Yeah, so we're Brotherly Act has three key components. So education very important um, but then we are stuck now we're trying to make sure it is not didactic some of the young men we talked to have let us know i do not want this app to remind me of school and so we've packaged it in such a way it's almost like you know those buzzfeed magazines 10 things about you know having a chiseled square chin whatever those kind of topics but making it bite-sized using brief modules and they can complete six to seven modules on different topics in, you know, you can complete a module in five to seven minutes. Um, basically, we're trying to do some skills coaching. So how do I leave again? Or how do I refuse drugs and those kind of things? Um, another component of Bradley Act is what we call the safety planning 
toolkit library. Um, there we have tools, say, for mood tracking. If you want to track your mood over time, or if you want to do some mindfulness stress reduction, um, you know, we have some of those tools in there. And the final component, which is a little bit controversial, is the AI chatbot. Um, the idea is to help these young men type text um, and have a conversation with an, a chatbot that has been programmed to connect them to services in the community. So we're in Chicago. We're going to start out with Chicago. It's a zip code-based um, platform. And if you, for example, talk about suicide, mental health, the app can recommend a service that other young men like you trust in the community. So it's a package of all those three different buckets. And is the thought that um, that Brotherly Act might end up being among the things that a court might mandate in the wake of of a, of a violent crime? Or wouldn't that be interesting for a court to mandate? Hey, you have to complete this 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 set of modules on your app. I think you know when I first came here, I first thought of Chicago as a very program rich place. We have a lot of violence prevention programs going on. But there's some sort of service avoidance. Some generally men, of course, we know help seeking is such a complicated issue for us. And for this population, the idea is to figure out how to let young men, you know, I think of some of them as the treatment curious. So think of a 13-year-old young man who hasn't been in the system, so the judicial system, and he's looking for help and support want to be able to reach that. We also want to be able to reach what I call the treatment veterans. So those people who are in and out of various rehabilitation programs. But the goal is to make sure that, you know, somehow we can add broadly act to, you know, the pediatrics emergency department. So uh, young people coming in for gunshot wounds, when they're getting discharged, someone can say, hey, there's this type of intervention you can complete on your own. We want to be able to also integrate it in, in schools, so CPS. But in the in the you know judicial system, we have programs like that. For example, if a man um, is completing uh, sentencing for uh, domestic violence, some states would ask you you have to complete twenty seven week program as part of your 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 release. So we're thinking of brotherly act in that respect. Uh, it's a long way for you know being mandated. But we'll we'll see how that goes over time. And the age of of, of men that you that Brotherly Act would would ideally serve is what? What's the range of age? Fifteen to twenty four. We're trying to do an early prevention type of uh, approach. Okay. And and there's an integrated uh, or there's other components of it too, right? I mean, you've got Second Act, and I think you even told me Fatherly Act, right? There's different different offshoots or an integrated package. Yeah. I don't know if you would call it that, but that's kind of how it feels a little bit. There, there's yeah. adjacent aspects to it, right? Mm -hmm. I think of, yes, it's definitely a package of different interventions. And by the way, we, you know, we do have second act, which we're trying to design for men who are re-entering the community from, you know, jail or prison. Um, yeah. You know, we've had some of our young men say we need in their own words, felon-friendly services. Um, so I want to get a job or I want to get a CDL license and how can I do that? So that's, you know, what that's the population second act is focusing on. And then Fatherly Act 
is the newest addition to the group. And it's focused on father-son um, interactions. So simply put, the father completes, the father who uses domestic violence in this case, completes uh, an in-person program. Following that, they uh, um, get access to an app-based component of Fatherly Act that they can complete together with the child who has witnessed their domestic violence. And of course, this is still at the proof of concept phase. It is likely that some young men don't want to talk to their dad, whether or not there was violence, but that's what Fatherly Act is designed. I should also say the act, the ACT at the end of all these names, is a short form for the acceptance and commitment therapy. Uh -huh. which is mm. a mindfulness-based behavior activation therapy that is based on the good old-fashioned uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. So there's a therapeutic ingredient to all of this. So, so meditation is a big component. I, I mean, you're talking about mindful, mindful stress release and, I mean, right? Yes. And Sean, I know you do, I don't know about Chris, but I know Sean, you do some yoga training yep. too as well. You've done that for quite some time. But yes, meditation and having people practice mindfulness stress reduction on their own is a key part of this. Because, of course, there's a lot of emotional arousal in this population, um, especially for the young men. Sometimes we just need to sit and think and think of ourselves thinking. And so that's what yes. that component is designed for. The thing we're finding is that, you know, the typical strategies for, you know, meditation and relaxation like yoga, it's not their go-to. I think about someone living in a community without sidewalks, right? Um, yeah, or someone yeah. living in a community, with, a community without yoga studios. So we're trying to figure out ways that appeal to young Black men for meditation. And so some of them have said, hey, I like to listen to this genre of music, or I just want to mm -hmm. go on a stroll, or I just want to shoot hoops on Saturday morning or whatever. So those are their forms of meditation. We're incorporating that into Brotherly Act. Mm -hmm. I, I can imagine you mentioned that you're you're very much proof of concept sort of stage here and uh, I'd be interested in hearing if and from where you've gotten funding so far to do any of this work but like before we get there when you think about proof of concept what are the metrics like what will we look to see to know that this is working so the thing about Bradley Act is unlike other interventions that directly target violence we're targeting um, uh, skills building around various risky behaviors. And so eventually, when we go to, of course, in research, you, you first, besides design and intervention, you want to get to a clinical trial where you can test if outcomes and behaviors are changing. So we're, we're going to get there hopefully in fall this year, where we want to see if, one, violence is going down, uh, substance use is going down. But the big, big, big thing is emotional avoidance and service avoidance. Those things almost are our direct target. Because if you can have young men be psychologically flexible, if you can reduce the emotional avoidance, if you can increase their trust in using behavioral services, you can address most of the sort of risky behaviors. So that's where we're going to. Is, it, I, is, is, well, I was going to go just ahead, real go quickly ahead. say, like, emotional avoidance, how do you test for that? Is that a, a perception survey um, question that, that you that you look to, or is it oh, school, we have some, school attendance or what? We have some wonderful uh, 
we call them validated instruments that have been tested okay. to show um, declines in emotional avoidance. So uh, emotional avoidance presents itself in various ways. So sometimes, like I said, um, some young men, uh, I'll give a classic example. A lot of young men are dealing with sexual assault as you know the the victim and you'd you'd have a young man come in and he has so much anger just pent up anger for decades and he asks for help for everything else except that thing that sexual assault that that experience of sexual abuse so you find you know young men being angry hyper vigilant um and various other forms of you know just disconnecting so that's a form of emotional avoidance and we have a um, a few questionnaires that can measure those things and then see if it's, you know, changing over time. And then I imagine ideally you'd be able to stay in touch with men who have been through the program for years afterward to see sort of the longer term efficacy. Yes. There's always a, typically if you do, if I do my job right, there should be a, a you know, three months, maybe six month follow up. And then if we see that, you know, Hey, Emotional avoidance is going down by, I'm going to use percentages just for simplicity, but if it's going down by this wide percentage margin, then we can try to see, hey, if we extend follow-up up to a year, 12 months, what, uh, which part of that effect still remains? So it's always good if you have effects past three months. Typically, violence prevention is such a hard thing, I, I must confess. It's a really hard thing to change. Um, mm -hmm. domestically violent men have a very, very high recidivism rate, even when the court system tells them, if you do not complete this program, you will be sentenced. Um, black men have one of the highest recidivism and dropout rates from these programs for, for various reasons, about 2.5 times, they're 2.5 times more likely to drop out of the program. So, um, of course, we're trying to make sure that some of those effects are lasting. Um, so that's where Brotherly Act comes in. It's an invention you can go back to yeah. on your phone. Is is there is there a couple of reasons, significant reasons why men black men drop out of the program? Yes. Uh the the most foremost one is uh Sean, I'll tell you the other day, there are various, various forms of masculinities out there, uh, you know, machismo yeah. and uh uh, Hispanic community. Black men also have their own Black masculinity and ideals. And some of these programs sometimes do not address, you know, those nuanced form of expressing yourself as a man. You, we use this broad stroke approach um, to, to do rehabilitation with these men. And of course, you know, you're not talking to them. Some of them just show up because they have to show up, um, you know, that week. But we want to be able to use culturally competent I, I don't like that phrase culturally competent um because how competent can you be in someone else's culture but anyways just to make sure that the intervention targets the community which is why brotherly act is just focused on you know black men for now yep yep it's a great point hey, um other qu other question about the program so utilizing the technology is um the the foundational aspect it's it's the focus is there is there personal interaction with these young men as well? I mean, is there some I'll call it 
mentoring, but that may be too strong of a word. Um, but anything like that as well that goes on? Yes. Yeah, so initially, I was thinking, hey, we can do this all entirely online, but that's that's uh, <laughs> that's wishful thinking right there. So at the beginning of the program, the young men get some kind of uh, brief orientation to the intervention and what's going on. And one of the things they've always asked, which, you know, as a young, <laughs> as a young professor, you only have so much funds to do all the things these young men want. Um, so, but one thing they really want is 24 seven access to an actual human being. So the chatbots, yeah. we always let them know this is not a real person. So if you're in emergent danger, call 911. But yes, we want to be able to, at the beginning of the program, have them talk to someone really. And then while they're using the intervention, there's always that um, staff support. So you can text someone, you can call someone for help. Yeah, okay. And and I, I don't remember if we talked about this in our first chat. Um, this is your intellectual property or or is it, or, are you, <laughs> is, or is it Russia's intellectual property? And is this a for-profit initiative? Or or a nonprofit initiative. I would hope it's entirely nonprofit, and that's the direction I'm pushing for. Um, I don't want a young man who's trying to get help for gun violence to want to pay four ninety nine to download this app. Yeah, but Rush, of course, would think entirely differently about that. Um, but you know, there may be some from. So when you get an intervention that's clinically viable, you know, you get some kind of commercialization. So think about the school system buying your uh, or subscribing to your intervention. That might be the higher level for-profit um, uh, approach, but you know, on the individual level and right now, as I think of it as hopefully a free app, something we can just have young men download from the iStore or you know, Google Store, whatever they call it, um, and yeah. use effectively. Chuka, first of all, it's amazing that we could spend this much time on what I think you might describe as a side project, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, which makes me feel like I'm not doing enough. Um, but 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 if we could take a step back real quick, I look at your LinkedIn page and you started out studying biochemistry and then you went into administration and public health and you got your PhD in nursing and health innovation. Um, I'm not sure that linear would be the adjective <laughs> used to describe that. Well, and he was a and he's a graphic designer too. And like he's a graphic designer too. Like, right, right, right. Yeah. Um, but but I would love to hear a little bit of that backstory. Like, how did those dots get connected in the way that they did? Yes, biochemistry was my one shot to medical school. Growing up in Nigeria, first first son of the family. I mean, the idea was, you know, the hope was that you do something professional. So I was going to go to med school, but I came to the U.S. almost 10 years ago and wanted to do public health related work. And, you know, I got a master's in public health. I thought it would be interesting to get a second master's halfway through focused on public policy. And I did that. Um, but right around when I was done with the, the those degrees, now I have a lot of alphabets behind my name and my my you know my in-laws they laugh at me and my family members laugh at me because they they describe me in quote as an educated idiot but, uh, <laughs> that's that's what family's for right <laughs> yeah so, 
I mean, I had this chip on my shoulder. I had a lot to prove. Uh, but overall, I ended up doing nursing, even though I am not a nurse. I always have to say that. But nurses have been at the forefront of uh, violence prevention since the 60s and the 70s. So especially domestic violence, which is sort of where I started out from working with female survivors of you know domestic violence, dating violence for the adolescents and all and so on and so forth. Uh, but then I found out that while we're doing all this wonderful work, of course, very necessary work for the female survivors, you know, men, the perpetrators, as we call them, will typically go on to serially abuse across their life's lifetime. And the interventions we have weren't doing a really good job. Um, and so I decided to dive, you know, head first into working with perpetrators, which is a really hard thing to do and, and risky thing to do in, in my world. But, you know, that's the trajectory and that's sort of how I ended where I am. And of course, I do like shiny things. So I'm always involved in definitely any project that pops up. I should learn how to say no, um, not there yet, but I'm very much all about all over the place. But in you know, the central theme is violence prevention. Thanks for listening to If You've Come This Far. This episode is brought to you by Judson and Moore. Chicago Distillers of American Whiskey. They're distilling, barreling, and bottling right here in the Avondale neighborhood on the west bank of the Chicago River, and they're already winning awards for their bourbon, rye, and single malt whiskeys. I personally recommend trying them all, either straight or in their delicious cocktails with some of the great live music acts that come to play in the bar. Check them out at judsonandmore.com. Now back to the show. I'm, I'm, I'm reading a book right now called Essentialism by this guy patrick McEwen, i think his name is and and, and you can imagine what this book is about um it, it, the shortest way to describe it there i think there's an old stephen covey quote that says the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing and uh such an interesting trajectory and background that you just described if you extrapolate that that trend like what what what's the big picture for chuka like what like what do you like, what's the the eventual mark that you want to leave, or or what do you want to be doing? You know, as you pursue this sort of line of work and this sort of struggle against violence. Well, short of retiring on a big, big, big ranch somewhere <laughs> <laughs> with trees hiding me from the world and a lot of animals and my my wonderful family, um, I think the the eventual goal is, you know get to a stage where we can sort of grab some of these young men out of that trajectory to risky behaviors, you know, besides violence. And, you know, when you think about it, we all participated in some form of risky behavior, you know, growing up. Um, we, we experimented. Um, we, we tried on different personalities and personas and all of that stuff. But some men stay in that life, you know, I was talking to somebody about, you know, incels, the, the, the email I sent at 3.30 a.m. And they wanted to figure out, you know, why and how can we help and how can we help this man? But I think the big picture for me is getting to a place where we have this set of programs along the lifespan of a family from, you know, you know preteens all the way to an adult man. And we have support services for risky behavior. So brotherly act, fatherly act, second act address that at various levels of the family. But a lot of men need mentorship. 
they need guide, guidance. Um, the U.S. Surgeon General just you know put out that warning and report about widespread loneliness in the U.S., which is becoming. I mean, I, I talked about this in the Miss uh, Magazine op-ed. Um, most of the young men I talk to, because I do qualitative interviews, not a lot of numbers, but asking them about their stories, um, there's a profound sense of hopelessness, you know, with this young man. Uh, some of them are, you know, I've had at least a couple of young men in the last two years uh, tell me that they're more afraid to to live than they are to die. Mm. Um, so that's the mindset going in. We want to be able to start changing that mindset with this young man. Wow. So, so, yeah. So, I, 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 what occurs to me is um, two distinct different groups. So, so arguably, the incel community are young white men. Mm-hmm. Yes, the, they are. The group, the the men that you're working with on Brotherly Act are young black men. Um, so what overlap, what are the overlaps? I mean, you talk about profound sense of hopelessness. Um, I, I, I'm going to say that, that, that in both of those different groups, the socioeconomic situation obviously is very, very different, but they they both have that same struggle, that hopelessness. Are there, are there, you know, one, two, three things that we can do that covers both groups that, that begins to address and serve both of those groups despite the fact that they're culturally different yeah yes if we if we had that magic bullet but every time i have to talk about solutions i find my solutions changing you know over time but right now i think one solution that a lot of people are talking about is we got to figure out a way to address what you know some smart people are calling uh, a global masculinity crisis. It's not just in the US, it's everywhere. And this is an era where there's a shift in the power dynamics. There's the shift in economies. Uh, women are getting a, a lot more advancement now than they did uh, you know, decades ago. And you know they're, they're doing really well. I wrote about that book by Richard Reeves of Boys and Men. He just published that not so long ago. And he sort of drew our attention to how, you know, girls are doing better in math, they're doing better in English in the classroom, women are now leading countries, and all that wonderful stuff that's going on. So you can imagine in this in this era, some men are feeling left out. Now the overlap is for white men and black men, they are feeling left out. And sometimes for, you know, different reasons, but there's an overlap. Low socioeconomic yeah. status, you know, men are finding it hard to hold and secure jobs. Um, you know, men are living in families where women are becoming breadwinners, um, you know, to put it uh, mundanely. But some men are feeling left out. It, it almost feels like the power uh, is, is leaving, which I think, and, you know, someone can argue this is wokeism at its finest, but I think it's, it's a good thing. We just need to figure out for the men where we land. And of course, not, not, not a lot of men struggle. I should say a minority of men feel that way, but they're very vocal about how they feel. And so the overlap is um, unattended mental health issues is a big deal. I should say, and I should put a disclaimer there, 
not all incels have mental health problems. There's not right. not a one for one, but mental health right. issues are, are a big deal. Um, and then this widespread exposure to harmful media, you know, young boys feel like they have to look a particular way to get accepted. Um, you have right. videos and documentaries talking about young boys using um, a hammer to chisel at their face, literally hit at their chin mm. to try to get the, the square square jaw um, outlook, uh, profile. And, you know, there's a lot of confusion about what it is to be a man, how we can express ourselves. Um, I should also talk about, you know, the gun epidemic in the U.S., a lot of men know how to express themselves as men behind the weapon. Mm. And we need to figure out a way to get this young man to be, especially the young men, because it's easier to change that thinking at that stage, mm. but to get them to be mm. comfortable in themselves as men and to show what positive uh, masculinity looks like, positive male, male-to-male interaction looks like. And these things happen all the way from the home to the classroom, to social media, and the kind of messages they see out there. If we censure folks like Andrew Tate, who's pushing this, you know, male supremacy ideology, very harmful and toxic. If we start to censure those people, our young people start to learn that that way of thinking about women as objects is not um, permissible. It's not sensible. So, Various various ways to address this in terms of figuring out solutions. Does uh, I mean I don't, I think that the problems that you're describing the societal problems are undeniable. I don't I can't imagine anyone wanting to pick a fight with you about whether or not those problems exist. How how does Rush Hospital think about this? I mean, you've got a a, a youngish faculty member here who's got this idea. And you're trying to get them on board. Uh, I'm not entirely clear on whether or not that's directly aligned with the mission of Rush Hospital, but maybe I'd be interested in hearing your experience with them and how you think, like, what are the societal institutions that would get behind this work? At least, I mean, everyone's behind it, right? Everyone's like probably cheering you on from the sidelines, but who's going to write you checks to try this? Um, I want to answer first about how Rush comes into this. And, you know, the incel thing is also a side project. I'm not an expert in incel-based violence, although since I'm a violence prevention person, I sort of think about incels as an emerging form of violence that we need to address. But, of course, when young men come into the pediatrics emergency department at Rush with gunshot wounds, we do, you know, some kind of brief intervention. By we, I mean the people who work there. I'm not on the clinical side. But, you know, they do some kind of brief intervention, one, to get this man to not retaliate, which is often a big, 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 big deal. Um, and, you know, to get their family members who are there to support them. So that's how Rush would do what Rush knows how to do best on the, on the medical side. We do have some funding for violence prevention, uh, my team and I. Um, I have a, uh, I just turned to the left, but there's a, there's, a, there's a whiteboard here. I was trying to figure out who's funding what. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the Rush BMO Bank collaboration, they have a health equity institute. Um, they funded me and, and this research. Um, the Chicago Chronic Conditions um, um, Health Equity Network 
is also one of our, our big funders in, in terms of research. Uh, we've, we've applied to the Institute of Translational Medicine, which is this group of various universities here in Chicago, Rush, Northwestern, um, UIC, UC, coming together to form this institute to tackle various issues. And of course, violence is one of the key issues that we are dealing with as a city, as a country. And so these are the types of funding that we are getting, although we need to get the big funding from you know the government. So we're doing some, we're sending in some grants to the National Institutes for Health, um, the, specifically the National Institutes for Mental Health Disparities um, to sort of address and fund large-scale versions of this intervention. It's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, 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 one other quick question. I feel like I, I'm hogging the time a little bit, but um, you came here to the United States after you finished your undergraduate degree. Correct. Right. That and was that explicitly to attend University of Missouri um, for your master's, or, or I mean, did you come with your family, or did you come as you know just yourself as an adult? Um, like, why why the move? I just came by myself. I got a little bit frustrated with um, the education system back home, and I wanted to do a little bit more. I've always been on the the book side of things. Um, so I, I came here, I got accepted to a few other programs across the across Europe, actually. <laughs> Missouri was my only get in the US. I hadn't studied anything about Missouri. I just accepted, got on a plane, came into Kansas City through this large cornfields. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh my God, what did I get myself <laughs> into? And, you know, I was thinking about children of the corn. I'd seen that in Nigeria back, back then. And I was like, geez, what's going on here? Um, you know, with my backpack. Uh, but, you know, I came. And, of course, violence that I experienced in Nigeria was very different. We don't have a lot of guns in, you know, people's pockets in Nigeria. Um, so, But we do have various other forms of community-based violence. Of course, violence against women is a very big deal, in, especially because it's a very patriarchal society. Um, but then I found the same forms of violence here in the US. And I'd be casually having lunch with colleagues in my master's program. And you know, someone would drop an experience of verbal abuse or maybe even physical abuse with her partner. And it, it just seemed very normalized. You know, why I figure out a way to sort of start addressing those things. And I didn't figure it out until, you know, to be honest with you, I got into my PhD program. And now I decided, yes, the people who actually perpetrate the violence will be my my focus group. Yes, you I, so I, I told you my my daughter went to Columbia. I I, I think it's a great town. I like it. The the ride from Chicago to Columbia sucks. Right. <laughs> uh, once you once you once you get there, it's great. But your wife's from there, right? You met her there, is that right? Yes, I met her in a comedy show. When I grumbled my way to because my best friend was an extrovert to the core, wanted me to <laughs> get out of get out of my apartment and leave Hulu alone. Um, but anyways, I met her there. She's originally from um, Wichita, Kansas City where she was born, but her family lives mostly in um, surrounding communities around outside of Colombia, two hours outside of Colombia. 
Um, so that's where we met, small town girl. Um, met this <laughs> Nigerian dude, and, and now we live in you know big town Chicago. Were you actually doing a comedy act too? Are you a comedian as well? <laughs> no, you no. Just went, you just went to you just went to the show. I just went to heckle people uh, and just uh, <laughs> and just and just say stuff. I used to we used to be a little bit mean back in the day. Um, <laughs> I had this best friend who's also an international student. And, you know, the plan was as soon as we're done with our program, we'd head back home, nothing to lose. Um, so we went to the show. It was incredibly boring. Um, well, at least the set that I paid attention to, outside of looking, still in side glances at my now wife. Um, but it was wonderful. And it's, it's, this, it's a place called the Blue Note um, well, not the Blue Notes, Rose Music Hall in Colombia, and they often have yeah. this those gigs. Um, but it was it's it's a nice town. I love and I miss Colombia yeah. really. I yeah. I got I gotta say, for my money, Children of the Corn is the scariest movie I've ever seen. <laughs> and and well, the idea that you got off the plane and you're and that's the first thing that comes to to comes to your mind. Yeah, uh, that's rough. I don't watch scary movies. I'm out, I'm out on scary movies. I don't need to be. I stopped too. I, I it was yeah. my yeah, bag. I, yeah, Chuka, uh, we got to spend a little bit of time talking about your main job. Uh, like, what what are you teaching? Who are you? Who are? are you know, is it is it course room or uh, like uh, classroom coursework? Um, or is it? You know, you said you weren't on the clinical side, but is there a clinical component to that? So my all the master's degrees I got finally started to account for something. Uh, I, I teach uh, health policy and finance to nursing students, um, especially those on the DNP side. DNP means doctorate of nursing practice. So they do a little bit of clinical work and administrative work. That's sort of where they end up. Um, and so they, of course, need this you know, health policy, health finance skills. I also teach a little bit of statistics to you know, uh, uh, PhD students as well. And, you know, Basically, as an assistant professor, there are three different things you need to know how to do well. Teaching, research, and service work. And so that's my teaching life. Research, of course, it, we've been talking about that for some time. Violence prevention is basically my research, the communities, my lab. I went from doing research in, in a Petri dish as a biochemistry student to you know now going out in the community and begging people to join my study, my research. and. Uh, then and service work is also overlapping heavily with yeah. my research because, of course, I, I talk to people. I volunteer with some of the organizations here. Um, I don't just, you know, rush in there uh, to collect data and get out. Um, I sort of help as much as I can. And we have some really meaningful partnerships with, you know, a reentry organization here in Chicago, um, a male mentoring program, the Urban Male Mentoring um, program. The WE organization is a reentry group. We just started that partnership. And then uh, Chicago Black Therapist Network is a therapist network of 140 different uh, Black therapists. And we've been partnering that with them in different capacities and hopefully want to get some more partners. I got to bring this up. Um, <clears throat> I saw a, 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 a Twitter post the other day and, and I it struck me because this ails me, but the Twitter post was 20 years from now, the only people that are going to remember that you worked late at night 
or your children. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, and we started out by talking how you're up till three thirty. So, um, I know you're not going to forget your one year old son as he grows older, but but it's it's something that I need to constantly remind myself yeah, of as well. Me too. And thanks for bringing that up because I said I do those three things well, Elliot. But fatherhood is a thing I don't do <laughs> really well. I, I I could do a little bit um, better, to be honest, with being a dad. Yeah, well, but I also believe, and this is really uh, far afield from where what we're talking about now, but like I also believe that your son is going to benefit from having a father who's trying to make the world a better place, right? So yeah, um, yeah. it'd be one thing if you were working hard to make the rich richer, but but you're not <laughs> doing that. Um, so as an expert in, in healthcare uh, with a particular lens uh, into nursing and, and, and policy, um, I, I'm in the education nonprofit world. The last organization I worked for was all about teacher preparation with a real focus on preparing preparing well more teachers of color. Um, mm -hmm. And I hear you talk about that a little bit, but like uh, I've also heard um, this is not evidence-based. This is more anecdotal, but I think I've been led to believe that there's a real nursing shortage. Um, like, yes. What, like what? what's the biggest pain point for our healthcare system when it comes to nurses? Oh, there are several pain points. And one, just there seems to be, of course, we lost a lot of nurses. We can start with that recent history during the pandemic. Nurses, we started out hitting bed, uh, you know, pots and spoons and celebrating them at the beginning of all of that to attacking and criticizing nurses for you know doing their job and so we had a lot of people drop out um, just leave the profession at that point um, we also have issues with um, nursing students graduate nursing school uh, we have issues with entry into nursing programs you know states that are punitive of immigrants do not um, they probably realize it but a lot of people do not know how many of our nursing personnel comprise immigrants from other countries. Mm -hmm. It is a, I, I couldn't give the number, but it's a very, very large number. Um, and then paying nurses well for doing their work. And, you know, another thing that is it's not emerging, it's always been there, is workplace violence towards nurses. A lot of people do not understand that nurses get assaulted mm. frequently by patients. Um, and then, they, you know, some of them are in institutions that do not, you know, address those issues appropriately. And my wife also works in healthcare. And, you know, when she told me that sometimes there's a button you can press in the room, if you if you feel like, you know, there's danger, I just felt so, it felt, you know, really shocking to think that we've gotten to that stage yeah. where there has to be a button in the room to call for help. Um, because someone's trying to, you know, smack you or something. But all of these issues put together has created a perfect storm of, you know, nursing scarcity. We also have scarcity for nursing faculty, um, which is how I got roped into now <laughs> teaching in a nursing school. Um, so nursing schools are starting to borrow from public health schools, uh, graduates from public health schools. And then I got my PhD in nursing research. And now I teach at a college of nursing. So that's why we were trying to plug that, stop that leak. Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a big issue. Yeah. I should also say it's a global issue, but particularly pertinent in the US right now. 
Yeah, and I think if we uh, if we further look at the data, there's a, a huge number that are also going to be retiring. Um, you know, the other the other other piece of data, and you and I talked about this um, roughly right now. The population, I think, 13% of nurses are men, and you know, when we talk about you know, men, as you mentioned earlier, when we talk about men not um, contributing to you know. Um, work to the economy there you know on the sidelines this is potentially a huge opportunity if we can get men to think about the fact that nursing is not just a woman's woman's work mm-hmm. a woman's job that in fact there's a lot to be done there and it's a, it's a great career trajectory and so can we begin to put programs in place that encourage men to consider nursing as an option i mean if yeah. your if your classes how, how many men are in the and what percentage of men are in the nursing classes that that you teach? Yeah, it's that. Oh, that's that's yeah. One in I teach you know one of my classes twenty students on average a semester. Maybe one or two of them would be male, and right. even when I did my PhD program, it's the same thing. If you go to a, any nursing school and look at the website for the faculty, mostly female. Um, I think someone mentioned I am the, I'm not sure if I'm the first, but the only PhD trained male um, in my in my current college of nursing who is trained as a PhD um, in nursing. Uh, we do have this wonderful program. I, I want to give them a shout out. Men in Nursing is a program at Rush University that is actively and intentionally trying to, you know, bring in more men. And of course, there is that whole cultural thing about, you know, men cannot be nurses and, you know, right. being a nurse is um, uh, effeminate and those kind of ideologies, which still persist today. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're making very, very gradual process of uh, progress. And I have some colleagues who are um, doing a little bit more to shine a light on this issue and to get more men involved in nursing. What about what about the the demographics in the nursing field around uh, black and brown uh, nurses? Is that also um, you know embarrassingly low? It is. So um, I don't know about brown male nurses. Uh, they are higher in terms of their, their percentage in the nursing field in general. But black men, black male nurses, do not even ding as a percentage. Because uh-huh. they're such a small, small group, there is no coherent, you know, number to to we could just we just say less than one percent, which of course is, is being very generous. But such a really small number of black men um, are nurses, which is a is another issue that a colleague of mine is also trying to address. Well, so I mean, obviously, we have work to do to make that profession better for people you know obviously pay is one thing negating the need to have a a danger button in the in the hospital room would be another obvious thing if we could get to that point but like when you think about your son for example if your son you know 12 13 14 years from now said dad i think i want to go to college to be a nurse and assuming things were then the way they are now what would you say to him of course do it um Nurses are one, the most trusted profession in the US, but two, they are the backbone of the healthcare industry. They do not receive the yeah. the, the flowers and accolades that they deserve. 
of course, I would, I would, I would be proud. You know, I come from this stoic masculinity line, so you know, my pride might show a little bit differently, but I will be proud if he decides to to go on to be a, a nurse and he can specialize there. There, there are several specialties you can do as a nurse. But 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 is do, do we offer good funding for for that education so that the nurse doesn't have this body of of student debt that they need to pay off with the nurse's salary? Well, kind of like you have in med school, right? You take hundreds of thousands out in student loans. Um, not as bad with nurses um, in the nursing field, but of course, uh, they come out with student student debt that they have to pay off. And some of them have to pick their specialty based on how much they can make to pay off, you know, that debt. And, you know, it's a catch-22. If you go to a really good school, of course, you have higher debt. You have to find a really good place to work so you can pay off that debt, um, which is why we have the concept of traveling nurses now. Who, Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to ask, because I was talking to somebody about this the other day, and um, uh, their daughter... It would make two and a half times what a staff nurse would make. At least this is one example. I'm interested in your um, your reaction to this. Uh, but now she's at a point where she's actually working at a hospital in the town that she lives in as a traveling nurse, making two and a half times what a staff nurse would make. And she's living in the community, but still is able to maintain the, the designation of a traveling nurse. Hmm. I, and I'm like, wait, at some point, that's not going to work out for the other staff, staff nurses, certainly. Is that, is that a real thing? Are you, are you seeing that? Yes, it is a real thing. Um, staff nurses, especially during the pandemic, um, complain about how this, you know, helicopter nurses will come in, you know, for a period. Of course, we needed the manpower for sure. But then they that's get right. crazy good compensation packages for doing that and of course that is not fair in a situation where the person also leaves in that community uh, that's a whole different level of unfairness because um, typically travel nurses go to where there's you know need for their services but yeah that's that just sucks and it, we need to figure out a way and you know a lot of hospitals uh sort of told the nurses to you know put their heads down and find their work and just keep doing oh, what yeah, they're doing. Right. Um, that's yeah. also some of the reasons that people left staff nursing and then became travel yeah. nurses. You know, we had that, right. that conduit of people who just left for that because of the pay. But you, I mean, uh, total layperson's take here, but like if you pay the staff nurses more, you might not suffer the capacity crisis that requires the yeah. need for the helicopter nurse, right? Tell me about it. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the thinking. But of course, uh, if we do not find the path of most resistance in healthcare, then we're not there working. Um, the American healthcare system, of course, is as complicated as it gets for various reasons, yeah. of course. But... We need to figure out a way and look at hospitals that are doing really well. We have some, you know, case studies here and there of hospitals that are doing really well uh, for their staff. My wife is also not a nurse; she's she's a radiology tech. But that's a whole different field. They mm -hmm. do, by the way, have traveling radiology techs. Um, no, a lot of traveling, no. traveling jobs going around. 
Um, Chuka, uh, we're, we're going to ask you three questions at the end here, but before we do, is there anything else that like, wh- what, what did we not cover that you are like, are, are psyched to talk about these days when you go out to comedy shows and, <laughs> and have drinks with friends? Like what, like what are you most jazzed about these days or what did we miss? Um, I think I'm a little bit hopeful about Gen Z and this, that entire generation. They are upsetting the rest of us, <laughs> but they're 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 flourishing in how they're defining their identity. And you know, I'm thinking of the men and males in that generation. They're sort of breaking the mold of what the rest of us upwards always thought a man should look like or, or speak like or walk like and all of that. I am hopeful about that generation and you know the things that are to come. So that just keeps me, that makes me, you know, happy. The fact that the young men I'm talking to are opening up and telling me about their problems is a big deal. It is so hard mm-hmm. to get men to, especially for a stigmatizing issue like violence. But I am hopeful and I know things are changing a little bit. So, you know, the progress is slow, a little bit faster for other countries in Europe um, in terms of, changes in positive masculinity men of course are increasing their roles in child care mm-hmm. um, we have the concept of stay-at-home dads now which will have been a completely ridiculous and atrocious idea uh, attended, uh you know 10 years ago maybe but now we have men owning that so that's mm-hmm. something that keeps me happy <laughs> that's awesome sean okay. anything else you want to you want to no, 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 it's great. I, no, I love Chuka, so we could talk forever, but glad to be here. Yeah, and, Chuka, yeah. I would say that we, I, I would love to take you out to lunch and talk some more at some point. Uh, and maybe, um, if you had any free time at all, you could accept, but uh, the offer is out there. Right? It'd be fun to hang <laughs> yeah, out let's do it. And happy to talk about this. Maybe come back and talk about another issue. I try not to sound like a researcher. Hopefully I did not do that today because <laughs> people zone out when you start talking with all the you know, big uh, SAT words. But yeah, love to grab coffee. And are you in Chicago, Chris? As well? I am. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, uh, nice. I'm just right up the road. I'm uh, like 1300 Halstead. But yeah, I've been here for like 21 years and have some good friends who work at Rush. So I, I, I think highly of that hospital. Um, so yeah, let's definitely try to get together. It's funny too, Sean. I mean, the whole reason that 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 Chuka came across your radar was the incels article, and we never even really dug into incels. Um, well, I, right. I think you know, and, and we can come back and talk about that because it's it's actually something Men Living is is giving some more attention to actually as an organization. So it might be something we we can go in deeper. But I think just even Chuka's whole focus on violence prevention kind of speaks to that particular that particular issue without going in and defining it and, and look at the manosphere and all those aspects of it. So um, I think it, it fit, it obviously fits well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, We could do this again as well. Um, Okay. Chuka, we're going to ask you three sort of canned questions here. We would love to get your response to you ready. Uh, First question is what do you wish you could have told your 10 year old self? Mm Hmm. Perfection isn't as good as I think it is. I, I've been a, I've been focused on being perfect a lot mm. in my life, 
and that has stolen away time, stolen away my joy. Um, it's okay not to be perfect. It's okay to enjoy life. Uh, as the first son, I didn't enjoy a lot of life because I was trying to, you know, step up. But um, yeah, it's okay to not be perfect. Yeah, right on. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it does remind me, I did want to ask you, are your parents still in Nigeria? Or Yes, they are. They're my biggest cheerleaders rooting me on, on Facebook as much as they can. But they, all of my family is still back in Nigeria. Uh, but every now and then, my mom and dad come visit because they want to see their grandkid, not not me. Just, yeah. just want to be here for the grandkid. <laughs> yeah. How old do you think he needs to get before you want to take him back to Nigeria? I joke. I might put him in a in a box and ship him off to Nigeria as soon as he gets to his. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe put a sticker if found return to <laughs> But uh, I'm sure he. I'm sure he definitely will love this. You know, being my my wife is white, so he he not only isn't you know two ethnicities, but two countries and two cultures. Yeah, I would have loved to be there because I'm such a curious person. Uh, so I hopefully he enjoys being in that uh, uh, middle middle place. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Uh, second question: Do you have a mantra in life, or or even a mantra these days? Oh, I had to tell my mother this because she was trying to make a decision, and I told her I have this uh, technique. I call it the regret minimization scheme, which is a thing that, by the way, I found out that uh, Jeff Bezos sort of popularized, but. Anytime I have to make a decision, I choose the one that I will least regret. I do not understand or know what happiness means, so I choose regret as my benchmark. <laughs> I know it sounds very, Interesting. very hardcore and maybe terrible, but my regret minimization scheme has never failed me. Um, I, I just don't want to go back regretting the decision I made. And of course, I try to minimize that, thinking about it this way. Well, as far as mantras go, that's a pretty pragmatic mantra too. So there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. I like that a lot. Um, last question, and and you're you're uh, at least relative to us old balding guys, you're a relatively young man. But um, what do you hope that people will say about you at your wake? Uh, I hope they would say, "Can I curse in this?" Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. That I did not give a fuck. <laughs> yeah. put, put it on my headstone he did not give a fuck <laughs> see that's well, funny wait, you say that but, but, you, but, you but, wait, 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 wait. yes right yeah so so what it about what in particular i think i'm a misanthrope um i think i don't like people in general um <laughs> it, it, even though i have to work with people uh, but that's just that's just me. I grew up reading transgressive fiction like, you know, uh, Vladimir Nabokov or Charles Bukowski. Um, so that sort of shaped, you know, <laughs> the way I think. So, yeah, for someone who has to work but with you're, people. Wait, well, <laughs> I'm totally confused. You're working with people. You're trying to save people. I mean, mm -hmm. you're, you're actually your whole life is I mean, I, that's how I interpret what you're doing. Yeah, <laughs> you don't. Yeah, I'm trying to save people, but I don't really like them. Yeah, you know, it's like is that... maybe it's because I've been exposed to the the worst kind of atrocities in my field. I get to see and read about that every single day, and it just yeah. you know I'm losing my 
and you know, the older I get, the more I become pessimistic. I'm a, I'm a nihilist in a way, I think. Um, but maybe my research is my way to stay to stay grounded because you know, helping helps yeah. me. I don't ever want to try to rewrite people's answers to these questions, but I wonder if, if, if what, people, what people are more likely to say is that, is that he didn't give a fuck, and yet he was still a do-gooder, right? He's still... Yeah. He's still um, those are great answers. Those are... I think that's the only one we've kind of tried to read. Like, we can't... Wait, What? <laughs> so far you know so, the funny thing is i know you asked oh, me three good. questions and i said i'd prepare my three responses <laughs> but i completely <laughs> forgot about them until chris <laughs> brought it up and i'm like uh oh now i have to come up with something but yeah uh, that's me no that's fair man that's fair um yeah it's, it's so nice to meet you um uh, and yeah it's likewise and and even though you don't give a fuck um i think that the work you're doing is just so important um and so admirable and inspiring thank you it up. Uh, same and same whatever whatever we can do to help with that too um mm -hmm. you know you talk about more partners i'm not sure you know if there's a if there's an avenue for us to do that but um certainly completely open to it um as you continue to take on um these initiatives so Sounds good. With men living, especially since you said incel is something that's digging on your radar right now. Yeah, I yeah. can see some um, overlap and partnerships coming up uh, in the future. Awesome. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. Awesome. Chuka, thanks so much. Uh, will you be taking a nap today by chance? <laughs> no, no. There's a, there's a lot to do. I can hear my little one. Uh, oh, oh making no. noises up there this is his time of the day <laughs> so i'm gonna go keep him entertained well i hope you have a great well, day and a great week and, and thanks again you too it thanks it was really good thanks. talking to you take care okay see ya take care peace Bye -bye. this is chris thanks again for joining us on this episode of if you've come this far and this is sean remember to check us out at menliving.org <laughs>